Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good to see you guys. Thanks to our students for doing some Christmas decorating this past weekend. And um, as I said, Ben uh, Olson and Mason and Luke were here and Kevin Tyndall and Jason Wright and Shannon Smith, you haven't seen because they've been in the kitchen the whole morning and George has been around running errands. So thanks to those guys for um, making this making this work this morning. Let me uh, let me ask you this question to start, and I'm looking for real answers. In honor of the holidays and the time that we are going to spend with the extended family during the holidays, does anyone uh, have a good crazy uncle story? You know what I mean by that? Does every family have a crazy uncle? Raise your hand if you have a crazy uncle in your family. Okay, are you the crazy? If you don't, if you're not, if your hand isn't raised. Let's talk later. Anybody got one? Okay, I'll just give mine. My, uh, my aunt, my dad's sister, was born like three years after he was. So she's probably born in 1946. Um, and she was, and this is back in Deerfield, Illinois. This is Americana in like the golden years, you know. Um, but she was with child at 16 years old. By the time she was probably 25, she'd been married three times. The second guy was super abusive to her and to her daughter from the first marriage, which is the only cousin that I really knew during my life. And, um, and she had just a rough, you know, go of things. And then she moved to Arizona, and I've only met her once in my life um, at my grandfather's funeral. And she was, living with some, she was living in a tent in the backyard of someone's house in Chandler, Arizona, with a guy from the Mexican Mafia. And then she had opened, like, a meth lab halfway house. She, she was the original Breaking Bad. I mean, this is probably, like, 30 years ago. And then she stole my grandma's identity and ran up tens of thousands of dollars on her credit card that my dad had to take care of. That's what I mean by a crazy uncle story. Has anybody (laughs) got one of those? And, like, it just doesn't even, I'm not, this is, you know, it's just after a while, there's only so much you can do. There's distance and distance uh, and all that. And um, and so we're not sure if she's still, um, if if, um, Aunt Marcia is still around. But, like, you just don't even think about it because it's, uh, it's crazy, and that's what it is. And most families, I feel like, have crazy uncle stories. Uh, most families, you just don't talk about them very much, you know, for whatever reason. And when it comes to Jesus' family, you wouldn't think that Jesus would have, like, crazy uncles or aunts, you know, or skeletons in the closet. And if he did, you'd think he'd keep them there. Um, but he doesn't. He puts them right in the Bible. So this series we're going to go through is called The Four Mothers of Jesus. It's not really so much about the mothers. It's the men in the stories that are crazier than, than the women that we're going to talk to. They end up with strength in most of these stories. But he puts them there because he wants you to see them, and he has a reason for it. So this is the genealogy of Jesus from, the, um, from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, you've never read this before, have you? Because you just get here and your eyes gloss over. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. And you don't even know who's a boy and who's a girl. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar is a girl. That's who we're going to talk about today. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. That is another of four mothers. Rahab, or um, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. 
Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and her name was Bathsheba, right, but they don't even, because it's so, that's such a scandalous story that he refers to the scandal instead of even her. <laughs> um, and so he puts these, women are not involved in Jewish genealogies. Read Jewish genealogies, women are not in them. And it's, I remember taking some seminary classes 20 years ago and taking a New Testament course and the guy just preaching through this genealogy and being blown away that they were in here and that if you were going to pick four women and their, and their stories to be in Jesus' genealogy, these are not the ones that you would have picked. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to read through um, this story. It is in Genesis chapter 38. And if you have a Bible, you can, you can open up your Bible or open up your app um, and go to Genesis chapter 38. It's long, so I didn't put the whole thing on the... Um, on the slides, some of it's on the slides, uh, but I'm going to read through it and, and just tell the story and then t and talk about what it means to us. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and called his name Onan, and yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah, 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 I don't know. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Uh, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground. This is right there in the Bible. So as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house until... Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that his son Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, let me talk for a few minutes about what's going on here. And let me start by saying this. Judah is not a good dude. Um, Judah is not a good dude. And this starts really before, this is chapter 38. In chapter 37, I'm going to recount a little bit of the story of Joseph. And if, if you're familiar with that story, it'll be helpful, but you don't need it. But this is all in the line. Abraham was the, was the father of the Jewish nation, and God was going to make him a great nation and give him land and, and bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. And, and Jesus is going to come through that line. It's that the bigger story this is a part of. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob is where the line's going to go, and he has 12 sons by four different wives, and the, his two youngest sons were Joseph and Benjamin, and Joseph was his, his favorite son, and that was a problem for Joseph's 10 older brothers because he was also annoying. He's just an annoying little brother guy, and he had a dream about how his brothers were going to bow down to him, and if you're a little brother, you have that dream, keep it to yourself, but he went and told them and they're like, after a while, they're just like, we can't take this anymore. We're going to kill him. And so they make a plan to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest of those 12 brothers, is like, we can't do that. And so he tries to hatch a plan to get Joseph back to his dad before the brothers kill him. But while he's doing that, Judah says, you know what? If we kill him, we don't get anything out of that. 
So this is Judah's plan. Let's sell them. We'll sell them to some slave traders. We'll get some money, and then we'll come up with a story that he was killed by wild animals, and we'll take the robe that dad gave him to signify that Joseph is his favorite. We'll put some, the blood of a goat on it and give it back to dad and tell him, hey, sorry, it happens. You know, this is Judah. This is Judah's plan. Bad guy. Just a bad guy. In this story, the, the way the language in the story goes, it says that he went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite and saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite who was, who was, um, who, who was the, uh, whose name was Shua, so the Canaanite's Shua's daughter. He's not supposed to marry a Canaanite. Um, you, you know, God had told him that, and so he goes down from his brothers and marries a Canaanite. The language that they use of he saw her and then he took her is biblical code language. Where else did someone see and take? David and Bathsheba. I think it is in David and Bathsheba. I was thinking of the Garden of Eden, but you got me. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, Eve sees the fruit that looks good for, for, to eat, and it's pleasant to the eyes, and so she takes it and eats it. And it happens like six times in the Old Testament, and it's code for somebody that just doesn't care what God thinks about their decision-making process. They see it, and they take it. And so that's what Judah does. He has um, kids. And his kids are not, are not good, but he's in denial. And you can, you can be the best parent in the world, and your kids are, are little sinners. That's what the Bible says, because we're all sinners, right? And so you can be the best parent in the world and have problems as kids, but his kids are just like he is. Like, they're just going to do whatever feels good to them and whatever they want. But he's in denial, and we'll see that of the whole thing. Um, and so just not, not a good guy. Ur, his firstborn son, is the first individual that God singles out and says, man, he's wicked. I got to take him out. Like, he's done that collectively before, but you got to be pretty bad. I mean, God describes himself as, you know, full of patience and loving kindness and, you know, slow to anger, but not here. Like, he's done enough, and so he's bad. And then the second Onan is, um, the second son, Onan, is, is no better. I mean, we don't know how bad Ur was, but, but Onan is bad. So, Okay, so let me explain a little bit more about what's going on, um, because in that culture, there's three brothers, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, and Tamar um, is married to the first one, but then the first one dies. She doesn't just get to go do whatever she wants to, but there is something in not just the, is the Israelite culture, but in every culture back then called leveret marriage, and lever is the word for brother-in-law, and so all the cultures did this, because the firstborn is so important, and the inheritance is so important. The firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance instead of the normal portion. And so when the firstborn died, the next brother has to marry his wife if there's no kids. And, and his first kid by his brother's, his dead brother's wife, is going to take his brother's place and get the double portion of the inheritance. So it's a really, and land is everything back then, and it's just a really big deal. Um, this is how it ends up being put into the Jewish law, you know, hundreds of years later. But this is what it reads because it's intense. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so that's it. They don't want the name blotted out of Israel, and so it's going to continue the name of that, that son. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife 
shall go up to the gate to the elders and tell on him, you know, and say, my brother's husband refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And so then this is, I have this bit from Deuteronomy up here. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Like, <laughs> this is right here. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> so it does seem like grade school stuff. But it's really, like, it's a big deal. Like, it's no, it's, it's no kidding. And so Onan doesn't want to do that. And I think Onan probably doesn't want to do that because he figures if she never has a kid, I'm the one that gets the double portion of the inheritance, which makes sense, right? And so he's got motive not to. But Onan, that we're in church, but it's in the Bible, so I'm okay saying this. Not only does he could just like not sleep with her, but instead he sleeps with her, but in such a way that she's not going to get pregnant. How is that? Is that pretty good? Okay. Um, he is having his cake and eating it too. He is a bad guy. He is a bad guy. God agrees with me, and so God kills him too. Um, and so Judah's got two bad guys that really act just like Judah does. But that leaves Tamar as a childless widow who has now lost two husbands. And Judah says, hey, my youngest isn't old enough yet, but when he is, then you'll marry him too. But in his mind, he's thinking, there's no way I'm marrying him off to her. Like, she is a black widow. Uh, he thinks that she is the problem because he's in denial that he is the problem. And his kids are just like um, him. But she, she will end up, like, widows in the Bible are a big deal because, like, she's not going to go out and get a job. She's not going to get remarried. She's been married twice to two guys that have died. She's not a virgin. She's not marryable in that culture. And so this, these are a couple quotes from, you know, commentaries about her situation. The dead brother would be provided a kind of biological continuity, and the widow would be able to produce progeny, which was a woman's chief avenue of fulfillment in that culture, and it's gone to her. Another one said, if she remains childless, she will not only be considered a failure, but will probably end up destitute. Because she doesn't have a husband, and she doesn't have children that are going to care for her. And so when her folks die, um, she's, you know, she's in trouble. So this is the setup for this story. Whenever I preach a narrative, I talk about how there's a setting, and a stress, and a search, and a solution, and a new setting. So the setting, the larger setting is the promise to Abraham, and where is Jesus going to come from? And, but, the, but the smaller setting is this Judah and like, how does the line come through him? Where does he get grandkids from? What happens to Tamar? And if you think about Tamar's options in this situation, you know, she could pray that God changes Judah's heart and lets her marry the youngest, the third son, and that he turns out to be a better guy than the other two guys were. <laughs> um, or she could just, you know, be a martyr. Um, I mean, it's just, she doesn't have a whole lot of options. And so it makes a little bit of sense of what comes next, which what comes next is crazy. Uh, so here's verse, I'm at verse 12 now. In the course of time, the wife of Judah uh, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah 
to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, a town which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So, Judah's wife dies. His period of mourning is a lot shorter than her period of mourning, which is a problem. And then he's going to a sheep shearing, which sounds like whatever, but from what everybody says, that's a guy's weekend in Vegas. This is a work hard, play hard affair. When they had a sheep shearing, it was a giant party. And, uh, and she has realized she is not going to get married to the third son. And so she puts everything on the line with this plan. She goes for broke. She takes off her mourning garments. She wraps herself up and dresses like a prostitute and puts herself in Judah's path. Now, a couple things. What must she think about Judah's character in order to come up with this plan? What does she think about Judah? This is probably not the first time Judah's used a prostitute if this is the plan that she is convinced is going to work. Like, she knows just how bad of a guy Judah is. How desperate must she be if she's willing to sleep with her creepy old (laughs) father-in-law to get out of her predicament? Um, And again, this is right here in the Bible. Like, it's right in Jesus' genealogy. This is an insane story. And what happens if he finds out what she's doing? What's he going to do? He's going to kill her. He's going to kill her. Like, she has no margin for error with this plan. Um, But she has nothing to lose, and she's thought it all through. So, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. And he answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. So he didn't, this is like, what's the guy from Popeye? I gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. This is kind of like that, sort of. Uh, But she needs a goat. And she's like, well, what are you going to give me until you can give me the goat? And he says, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her. And she conceived, she got pregnant. And then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and put on the garments of her, her widowhood. So she didn't have to proposition him, which you would think for her plan to work, that might be the case. But he, she, it worked, like she knows him. And so he propositions her. The going price is a goat, and she offers, she needs something in pledge. And so he gives her his signet, which is like his sign. Only wealthy people would have a signet to be carried in a, on a cord around his neck. And his staff, which every commentator said, this is like giving somebody your, your keys, your credit card, and your driver's license, which he was a pretty desperate guy himself, apparently. And then she disappears. So when he tries to offer, like, send the goat and get his stuff back, um, she's gone. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was in Enneam by the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, 
and you did not find her, which again, like he's shifting blame and it's his buddy's fault for not being able to find her. <laughs> and he says, just forget the whole thing because it'll bring shame on me when he's just like he's brought so much shame on her. He's just a bad guy. Um, now, the rest, of the, the rest of the passage, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. That is a little bit of dressed-up language. It, um, it, like another translation says, she's played the whore, and she has become pregnant by whoredom. And it's probably more accurate to the tone of the passage. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Which one guy said in the Hebrew, Judah said, take burn and and suggested like because he doesn't see what his sons are he thinks it's her fault and he's been waiting for this moment um, to get back at her Uh, and as as she was being brought out she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these belong I am pregnant and she said please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So this is like as she's being brought out, she says, hey, hold on just a second. Um, Can you tell him, does he know whose these are? Because this is the guy that got me pregnant. What a moment. (laughs) The word identify, there's so much wordplay in this. When Judah hatches the plan to sell off Joseph, take his robe, the many-colored robe, put the blood of a goat on it, bring it to, to Jacob, and say, hey, this is what happened. The word is, can you identify whose robe this is? And now that word has come back around to him. Hey, can you identify whose things these are? Um, And um, if the Bible ever has a you-go-girl moment, this is it, right? Now, they actually have video of what happened next. It is extremely rare to have video from this long ago. (laughs) But they do have a little clip of what the scene was. (laughs) Thought it was a rap battle, but it wasn't. That was the scene when um, she gives it to Judah. And then Judah identified them. And he has a moment. And I'll come back to this. And says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. And so something happens to him in that moment. Okay, let me say a few things about this story being in the genealogy of Jesus, and, and some of these things are kind of applicable to, you'll hear these again, because they're applicable to the, the other stories as well. But man, the Bible keeps things very, very real. Anybody got skeletons in their closet? Everybody's hand should be raised. <laughs> uh, Jesus knows about him, and um, he, is, he is concerned, but not like as concerned as you probably think he is. That's why there's a cross in the middle of the story. He sees your skeletons. If this were a poker game, he calls you, and he raises you the story of Tamar and Judah. <laughs> you know, it's, if there's a hold my beer moment for God, if he could say that. And Jesus used wine for communion, so I guess he could. Like, this is the moment where he's like, you won't believe my story. Uh, and he can handle your stories. Um, I'd, so, I didn't grow up in a, in a 
this is what we say, and this is, this is kind of true about the Bible, but sometimes Dan had said he grew up in church where, like, this is how the Bible was presented as basic instructions before leaving earth. It is not. There are definitely some wisdom in the Bible. The main thing of the Bible is a story. It's a mirror to tell us who we are and who God is and how we relate to each other. What instructions might you take out of this story? You know, sometimes it's okay to sleep with your father-in-law. I mean, it's just not, there's not always good instructions in there. It's not a situational ethics book. Ken and I were talking last week about his message about submitting to unjust authorities. And every authority that you have to submit to apart from Jesus is an unjust authority because it's all poisoned by sin. If you have authority, you are an unjust authority because you're poisoned by sin. And so they all are. But he's telling me about like, how the passage is saying you need to submit to that authority while I'm studying how Tamar's like, enough is enough, man, <laughs> and just going on her own. And so the, the Bible just is, it's real about your problems, and our problems are real big and too big for us to solve, and too often we pretend that we don't have problems like this when we do. The, God is, here's another thing, God is consistently on the side of people who are on the wrong side of injustice. He's consistently on side of the people on, on the side of people with little to no earthly power. The widows have no power, and God is with her. Orphans have no power, and God is with them. The poor don't have power in our culture, and God is with them. You know, with like just lots of folks that don't have power, excuse me, in the kingdoms of the world. Honestly, a lot of people, a lot of us in this room have a lot of power. Um, you know, more than we power that we we take for granted economic power educational power physical power relational power and we who have a lot of power should be really concerned about how we're using that power and in whose service we are exercising that power um a few years ago i got into um reading some biographies about bono the lead singer of u2 and and how much time he spent in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, just with the poor and with people that had AIDS, and, and I'm just based on some things he said, convinced he's a Christian, but one of his, and that's what drives that, but one of his um, lines was that God is with the poor, and so when you are with the poor, you can know that you're with God, and for a guy with that much power to think and act and give in that way um, made an impression on me, and our trap anybody's trap, is that no power is ever enough. We always know there's someone more powerful, more beautiful, uh, more wealthy, someone that's smarter, and so we strive for more for ourselves, and that's where we get focused when it's just not the way of the kingdom of God. The kingdom way knows that the, like the one that is the most powerful, the one that's the most beautiful, the one that is the richest and the smartest is Jesus, and he's on our side, so we don't need to strive for that because he's going to give us everything that we need. And the way of the kingdom of God is the way of Jesus, who gave those things away in service of those who need. And that's the example that, that we are to live by. And so God is going to be on Tamar's side, even though she's in this mess, even though she's the Canaanite. She's not in the family, right? Like she's been married into the family, but she's the one that should be on the outside of the family. And Judah's the one that's on the inside of the family, but God is with the one who is, has been done wrong, um, to whom an injustice has been done. All right. God can only use messy people to accomplish his work because he only has messy people to work with. Here's one of the things that I found when I was going, going through the story was that um, I was really surprised at how bad a guy Judah was. 
And I think I'd always, I've read the Bible a bunch of times. I just never noticed all this, you know, and I always assumed Judah was a good guy. And why did I assume Judah was a good guy? Lion of Judah, like Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Jesus came from Judah. He came from that line. And so if God's going to use him, then he must be a good guy. Does anybody realize the implications of that thought process for me in the moment I had there? Because if you think God can only use good men and women, then you think you are a good man or woman. And you're denying, like, the depth of your sin as expressed in, um, in the Bible. And I think part of why the story's in the Bible is to keep in a focus for us how much we need the gospel, is to get us to those places um, that we don't want to go. Uh, one of my, you know, one of my favorite, I guess, passages is from Romans 7, where Paul says, what I'm doing, I don't understand for the thing I don't want to do I do and the thing I want to do I don't do and he ends up saying wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death uh, but this, then says thanks be to thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus like it drives him to the place of understanding just how much we need Jesus and ultimately this whole thing is about Jesus God has a plan to redeem the world that involves Abraham becoming a nation with a land and a blessing but ultimately that blessing is the person of Christ who is going to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rise from the dead to show us that he has the power over sin and death. And that plan doesn't involve a bunch of perfect people. And God goes out of his way to talk about all of the imperfections of the people in the plan. There's another like wordplay in the story where he uses the goat. There's a goat and some clothing. So she wraps herself up in a prostitute's clothing and there's a goat involved in the story. Well, in the story before, there's clothing. There's the multicolored coat and it's dipped in the blood of a goat, and that's how he tricks um, his father. Well, in the story before that, Jacob tricks his father with a goat and clothing because he needs to convince his dad that he's the hairy one, Esau, and so he puts on the skin of a goat, and so that thread pulls through to show, like, we're all messed up, right? God doesn't want us to forget what a mess we were and what a mess in many ways we still are and how much we need the gospel of Jesus um, every day. But in the midst of that, that he can still use us. Um, we can't hide from that mess, and we have to let Jesus uh, re redeem us from it. So, fourth thing, um, God is a big fan of strong women. And that's part of the reason we're doing the series. Uh, it's amazing that they're in this genealogy. Just um, imagine, read through that story this week sometime, and imagine what it took for her to decide that this was the plan, and like the situation she was in, and what she was putting on the line um, in order for this to work. And like I said, last week, Ken preached a sermon, and we talked about that, how, you know, there is, and Ken said it in his sermon, if you can get out, get out, you know, um, but there's a there's like a base principle of submission to authority, but then there's a line someplace, and she felt like she was well past the line and justified in doing whatever she did, and um, she's not just in the Bible. She's in the genealogy of the Savior of humanity, you know? I think God was okay with it, and she is a part of—she sh of, shaped who Jesus is. I mean, she's generations and generations before him, but in a line of strong women 
that shaped who Jesus was. And in this series, Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba were strong women, but outside of that, Miriam and Rachel and Deborah and Esther and Hannah and Abigail and Mary and Elizabeth and Mary Magdalene and Priscilla and all of these strong women who shape the story. And so um, God is a fan. And here's the last thing, and let's take just a minute, but this is so cool. God is always ready to give someone a second chance. So Judah has a moment there, um, and he realizes, and I think it's a moment where he just, he owns not just that, but he owns himself and how much of a mess that he is. Uh, and he stops running from responsibility. Um, I said this in a sermon a few years ago. I think I'm the only one that remembers it. Sometimes people remember stuff that I don't remember that I ever said. Um, but I, I said, someone's going to take responsibility for your actions. It's going to be you or somebody else. And if it's consistently somebody else, that's going to grow old and wear down on things relationally. When he says she is more righteous than I am, like he's taking responsibility, and it's a, it's a moment of repentance. And he ends up bringing her into the household. She has these twins, and they are in the genealogy, and she's in the story. He doesn't cast her out. He brings her in. Now, you fast forward Judah's story, and... Um, and this is like an interlude in the Joseph story. So when, when we stopped the Joseph story, they had just sold him into slavery. He's on his way to Egypt. He's going to be a slave for a little while, and then he's going to be a prisoner for a little while, and then God's going to do some crazy things, and he's going to be the prime minister of Egypt. <laughs> and, the, and in Israel, they're going to experience a famine, and so the family is going to need to come down to Egypt because God had given Joseph the wisdom to store up all this food because he knew that a famine was coming, and they need food. And that's like the bigger picture of the whole story. So they, the, the ten brothers that were going to kill him come down, and they end up talking to the prime minister of Egypt, who happens to be their little brother that they sold into slavery, but they don't realize it because it's been like 30 years. And so they don't realize it. And they don't bring Benjamin, the twelfth, the youngest, because Benjamin and Joseph— were brothers from the same mother, and Benjamin became uh, Jacob's most precious son. So they didn't want anything to happen to him. So the ten go down and talk to Joseph, the prime minister. And so he gives them some food and sends them back. And he says, if you bring the youngest with you, I'll bring you even more food. So they convince their dad, let us bring Benjamin down. They bring Benjamin down for a second visit to Egypt to get more food. He sends them away, and Joseph has his servants pack their bags with all this stuff. And he says, take my silver cup and put it in Benjamin's bag. And then they get on their way a little ways, and Joseph stops them and says, someone took my silver cup. Now, Joseph is probably dealing with some PTSD for understandable reasons. Like, he needs some counseling, right? Like, there's a lot of, Joseph's been through a lot of stuff, and there's a lot going on in Joseph. But he just rigs this whole thing up, and he's like, Benjamin's got to stay because he stole the cup. And who goes to bat? For Benjamin and says that can't happen it's Judah it's Judah so this is a couple verses from that part of the story this is Judah now therefore as soon as I come to your servant your jo um, Joseph's servant my father who's Jacob and the boy Benjamin is not with us then as his life is bound up in the boy's life as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father Jacob to sorrow with sorrow to shield for your servant became a pledge of safety there's a lot of servants in here 
Judah, the, the speaker, became a pledge of safety for the boy Benjamin to the father Jacob, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And then he says, Now therefore, please let your servant Judah remain instead of the boy Benjamin as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy Benjamin go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He offers himself as a sacrifice his life for Benjamin's life, so that Benjamin could go back. He is Jesus in this moment. And man, he has radically changed from a guy who consistently does whatever makes him feel good to a guy that does the right things for those around him. And it is the gospel has changed him. And in the Joseph story, if you know the story, like the tension builds and builds and builds in the story with the brothers, and they don't know that it's Joseph, and when's he going to reveal himself? This is the moment that breaks him, and it's the gospel that breaks him. When he sees that the one who sold him out has changed so completely, then he sends out all his servants, and he says to his brothers, I am Joseph! And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> we're in so much trouble, he's going to kill us, you know? But it's, a, it's just the redemption of that story. And it comes through the transformation that has hap happened in Judah. And it, it's, a, it's, a gospel, um, it's a gospel moment for him and displays the change that has happened. So that is the first of our four stories. Um, you've got some communion cups in the, um, in the middle of your table. And um, this is the, the beauty of these stories and that God is willing to, um, to put such messed up people front and center in his story is that it, it gives us the freedom to be um, transparent. And I read a quote uh, probably six, 12 months ago that I've used a few times, but it keeps ringing through my head. The guy said, everybody, everybody has a public life that they let everyone see, a private life that like either they let a few people see or they can't help but let people see, and then a secret life that nobody knows about. And that could be in your actions. It could be just in your thoughts and just things that we can't help that we need to be redeemed of. Stories like this, where you can get somebody as bad as Judah, and God puts that story front and center and says, it's right here, and, and talk about the redemption that's possible um, because of the big story of the gospel for us, are meant to draw us to him and to draw us out in whatever it is that you're scared of, whatever it is that you don't want to show him. He already knows about it, and the this tells us this was sufficient to forgive all of our sins. And that's why we do this every week, um, is because we need that reminder. Because our default is to go back to the place where Judah was, where he just justifies all of his actions, instead of saying, she is more righteous than I am, like, and facing his own unrighteousness. And this allows us to, because he takes our unrighteousness and gives us his righteousness. And that is the miracle and the goodness of the gospel. So this is the body of Christ that has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. And this is the blood of Christ 
that has been shed for you and drink this in remembrance of him. God, thank you for, um, for this story. I thank you for the courage of Tamar. I thank you for the depth of your grace and your sovereignty. Um, I thank you that nothing was going to stop your plan to rescue us, Lord. There is no sin of ours that is big enough um, to stop your plan of redemption, Lord. And I pray you'd help us to be honest with you, um, with our own self, with each other, God, and that you would bring us to deeper and deeper moments of uh, understanding and confessing and repenting of our own unrighteousness, Lord, and receiving the grace that you've given us in Jesus, and that would transform us to be more like you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That is, that is this morning. Thank you guys for um, being here this morning. Appreciate it. I will send out a reminder about that Bible reading plan that John mentioned. We started an Advent one. We just finished the first Peter one. We'll do something new starting at the beginning of the year. If you've never done that, I'd encourage you to do it. There are comments that flow through. A couple people are really good at comment, commenting. A bunch of us just read and don't comment very often because we're losers, but we should comment more. But just to know that you're reading with a group of people is helpful, and there is no habit that will change your spiritual life quite as much as just reading your Bible on a regular basis, and this is a great way to do it. So join us with that. Love you guys.